Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, April 13th, 2021, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. For almost a quarter century, J. Douglas Kenyon was the editor and publisher of Atlantis Rising magazine. He's the author and editor of several books, including Forbidden History and Forbidden Science, and the writer, producer, and narrator of several documentary films, including Technologies of the Gods, Clash of the Geniuses, and The Atlantis Connection. He'll be talking about his new book, Ghosts of Atlantis, How the Echoes of Lost Civilizations Influence Our Modern World, um, investigating the perennial myth of a forgotten fountainhead of civilization, uh, Douglas presents extensive physical and spiritual evidence of a lost great culture, the collective amnesia that wiped it from planetary memory, and the countless ways ancient catastrophes still haunt modern civilization. He explores evidence of advanced ancient technology, anomalous ancient maps, extraterrestrial influence, time travel, crystal science, and the true age of the Sphinx. He examines evidence of Atlantis in the Bible and ancient Armageddon, the Stone Age high-tech found at Gobekli Tepe, the truth of Easter Island, the Zeptepi monuments of Egypt, the mysteries of the Gulf of Cambay, and what lies beneath the ice of Antarctica. He looks at extinction events, Earth's connections with Mars, and how our DNA reveals that humanity has had enough time to evolve civilization and lose it more than once. You can read about his work at uh, this website, innertraditions.com forward slash author forward slash J. Douglas Kenyon. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds not heard in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank Kathy, Jada, and Fiona for hosting the switchboard tonight for those who may have a question or comment. We have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds thanks to Tammy's continual dedication. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk. And if you'd like to show your support of our program, please, all you have to do is click follow on our page here, and you'll get our biweekly show notices as long as you enable those. Our main website is starseedhotline.com. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart. And the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one Zoom session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, Emerald, Miara, Riley, or myself. Lavendar's sessions are available for her established clients only now and have been redesigned to focus on your solar return covering your natural state, your rites of passage, your masterships, as well as covering your solar return and your current transits. So you're getting everything in a one-hour session, which would be scheduled ideally just before your birthday. Riley, Emerald, and Miara are now available for the live Stage 2 sessions, so you'll be able to have a Starseed consultation in a matter of weeks rather than months. And remember, if you have a birthday coming up, you'll get a window of 10 hours of power. 
You can find out exactly when it happens by requesting your solar return timing. And that usually takes only less than a week. Um, but if you want the stage two interpretation of your solar return chart, um, Emerald, Riley, and Miara are also available with very little waiting. But with me, uh, you'll need to order at least six months ahead to make sure you get it in before, you, uh, before your 10 hours happens. So uh, check out the new pages on our website. So first up tonight, I would like to introduce Anastasia as soon as I find her on the switchboard. Um, there you are. And Anastasia is bringing us the Starseed News. <laughs> oh, thank you, Ariel. Good evening, everybody. Great to be with you. Hey. It's going to be a really interesting show tonight. And uh, let's start out by talking about space and science today. Scientists have discovered water and organic matter on an asteroid for the very first time. Water and organic matter. Scientists indeed discovered the presence of water and organic matter in a tiny sample from the asteroid Itawaka, which was visited by Japan's first Hayabusa mission in 2010. Now, the findings constitute the first time such materials were found on an asteroid and set the groundwork for future research into asteroid samples. Well, now, researchers from the University of London suggest that the asteroid may have been evolving for billions of years by picking up materials as it traveled through space. And the study also showed that the most common S-type asteroids that enter Earth's atmosphere can contain the raw components essential to life. The scientific community had previously focused on carbon-rich C-type asteroids as a potential source for life on Earth. But the Hayabusa missions are focused on a robotic spacecraft developed by Japan's space agency to return samples from small near-Earth asteroids for detailed analysis right here on Earth. And Iwataka was the target of the first mission in their series of asteroid sample retrievals. Well... The organic matter that has been heated indicates that the asteroid had been heated to over 600 degrees Celsius in the past. The presence of unheated organic matter very close to it means that in the fall of primitive organics, in the fall, the asteroid arrived on the surface of, of Aotoaka after the asteroid had cooled down. So what they're saying is it was starting to sprout life past the heat stage. Things landed on it and they lived. Now, scientists say that the findings are very exciting as they reveal details about the evolution of asteroids, but more importantly, the role of space rocks m might have played in the formation of the universe. So the Hayabusa 1 findings have potentially massive implications for how life started on Earth, they say. The researchers highlight the fact that, based on their findings, that this asteroid's evolutionary pathway appears to be very similar to that of the prebiotic Earth. Well, it's just amazing that organic matter is discovered on an asteroid. That just kind of changes everything. 20 years ago, that would have never even been anticipated. So there you have it. Fascinating. Hmm. And man, the fact that they can launch these little tiny satellites and these little tiny spacecraft and land it on a moving asteroid is just, well... Science fiction has become science fact today. It's pretty amazing. And this is breakthrough. This is important. Scientists have discovered that they can collect animal DNA from the air, and they've been able to do that for the first time ever. Scientists have managed to collect what they call environmental DNA 
or eDNA for, uh, for short. They collect it right out of the air. DNA, right out of the air. Now, the practice, which is still in its early stages, tell us that it could revolutionize forensics, anthropology, and even medicine. The scientists first took air samples from a room that had housed mole rats and showed that air DNA sampling could successfully detect mole rat DNA inside of the animal's house. And the scientists also spotted human DNA in the air samples. Now, of course, the rats have caregivers. The caregivers left their DNA in the air. Well, they initially ventured a guess that this might be due to contamination. But, however, with further research, they came to the conclusion that the human genetic material was moving away from its original source and spreading throughout the air. Now, the use of environmental DNA has become a topic of increasing interest within the scientific community, particularly for ecologists or conservationists looking for efficient and non-invasive ways to monitor biological environments. Now, here we provide the first published evidence to show that animal eDNA can be collected from the air, opening up further opportunities for investigating animal communities in hard-to-reach environments such as caves and burrows, according to the first author of this study. Well, the researchers are now working with partners in the industry to bring some of the potential applications of this technology into real life. Researchers say that what started off as an attempt to see if this approach could be used for ecological assessments has now become oh so much more. They say that the technique could help researchers to better understand the transmission of airborne diseases such as COVID-19, and they say at this moment of social distancing, guidelines are based on physics and estimates of how far away virus particles can move. But with this technology, we could actually sample the air and collect real-world evidence to support such guidelines. The article that I'm drawing from went on to talk about forensic use, being able to tell who has been a crime scene, who has been present in a location. Apparently, we shed DNA as we move, and it floats around in the air. EGADs, you know, this is really um, a breakthrough in science. Um, we think about the time that germs were first discovered, uh, when nobody could have believed that a doorknob or a handle or something that they touched every day would have any little living thing on it because they couldn't see it. And now here they've discovered DNA in the air. Ah, wow. Pretty amazing. Ah, well, there is a project that I want to talk to you about. I don't know how many of you ever think about this, but have you ever wondered what happens to retired racehorses? Well, for people, when we think of retirement, we might imagine selling the house and cruising the country in an RV, or maybe we want to spend more time with family. But retired thoroughbred horses all across North America are also, now thanks to some very good people, are, are able to realize their own type of retirement dream. And it's made possible by a charity called After the Finish Line. Now, they go by the motto of Rehab, Retrain, Rehome, and Retire. This is a horse rescue group that raises money to award monthly grants to aftercare facilities across the United States, Puerto Rico, and Canada. And since 2007, this retired racehorse project has raised money so that these beautiful animals find a good home and they can receive medical treatment to keep them in good health long after their racing days are done. Now, what you might not know is that most thoroughbred horses finish their racing careers by the age of seven, usually because of injuries. And when they retire, racetracks sometimes have 
a hard time finding the horses a home. And some, maybe more than some, face early demise due to slaughter or or euthanasia. Well, now fortunately, with the help of these charitable, charitable organizations like After the Finish Line and the people who donate to them, thousands of horses get their chance at a new life, not only surviving but thriving. Many of them even transition into second careers as a hunter, a jumper, dressage, eventer, western, trail therapy, or just a companion horse. Because even for horses, it's never too late to start over. After the finish line welcomes volunteers. They are looking for professionals from a range of backgrounds, including fundraising, graphic design, social media, writing skills, and photography. So, it's a wonderful story. Um, one would never think about things like that. All of these horses that need homes and all the good people that are involving themselves to see that that's done. Gives me hope. And some of you who love horses may need to know about this. So remember, it's called After the Finish Line. You can look it up. Great. Well, now, let's talk about power. Let's talk about clean air and the environment. Somebody has invented a most amazing thing. Solar panels made from algae. Yeah. Solar panels of the future, they're telling us, could be a lot greener, literally green, 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 the color green, than the ones currently adorning our rooftops and fields. This is the vision of a 23-year-old Mexican biotechnologist whose solar energy invention put algae under the spotlight. These are called intelligent solar biopanels, and his technology is made out of microalgae and carbon nanoparticles, enabling it to generate clean energy and oxygen while absorbing carbon dioxide. Essentially, the invention uses photosynthesis to provide a double-edged environmental solution. It will purify the air while generating clean electricity. Now, they're both aesthetically pleasing and practical. These green, semi-transparent, triangular biopanels can be placed on almost any surface that gets sun exposure, including windows, walls, and roofs, and, you know, your usual suspects, wherever you put your solar panels. It's a patented technology, and it's the only multi-purpose system in the world based on microalgae and nanotechnology that allows you to save energy and provide health and well-being to human beings. What's also worth noting is that compared to conventional solar panels that are typically landfilled at the end of their lifetimes, the biopanels are entirely biodegradable and are made from a wide, widely available renewable marine resource. The inventor plans to improve the solar panels in the future by putting smart sensors on them that would monitor the environment. Uh, it's intention to provide data for addressing climate change. I saw photographs of these on the Internet. It's really quite beautiful. Green windows, transparent, with this beautiful light coming through them, all generating electricity, providing indoor shade, beautiful green, and improving the air. Okay, let's talk about health. This is pretty interesting. Um, I wanted to share it with you. Excuse me. Georgia lab experiments show that CBD reduces plaque and improves cognition in early-onset Alzheimer's. A two-week course of high doses of CBD oil helped restore the function of two proteins key to reducing the accumulation of the plaques in the brain that are, uh, cause Alzheimer's disease. And they created improved cognition 
in an experimental model of early-onset Alzheimer's. The researchers report for the first time that CBD normalizes levels in function, improving cognition by more than sevenfold as it reduces levels of high inflammation levels found in the Alzheimer's brain. A company has developed both animal and human inhalers for investigators now who have been exploring CBD's effect on adult respiratory distress syndrome, um, which is a buildup of fluids in the lungs that's one of the deadly complications of COVID-19, as well as other serious illnesses like sepsis and trauma. So CBD has many uses. They're learning to create it, uh, use it as inhalers, not only helping the function of the brain, but also other system diseases and problems. The Food and Drug Administration is scheduled to make a ruling by early June on a new drug, which would be the first to attack and help clear these uh, plaques, and uh, that will include CBD oil. Pretty amazing. Wow. Uh, well, let's talk about good news and good deeds and good deeds for positive change. Here's a group of people who have done something amazing. They've collected 20 million pounds of food from people who are moving, and they take it to food banks. This is a New Jersey moving company which has sparked an initiative capitalizing on the amount of food left, left behind in clients' fridges in order to increase supply to local food banks. Over 1,000 moving companies and 22 million pounds of food later, and one man who started it, he's the founder of this company called, or this organization called Move for Hunger, well, they have turned leftovers into charity. And he said, when people move, they throw away a whole bunch of stuff, food, clothing, furniture, you name it. And what bothered us was the perfectly good, non-perishable food that was getting left behind in the pantry or simply thrown into the trash. Well, it's not hard to understand. I mean, when you're getting getting ready to move and you're trying to get everything into boxes and pots and pans and, you know, you're running out of time. And when you're at the end, the last thing you want to think about, some people want to think about is just packaging up old spaghetti or old canned peas. The man <laughs> said, moving is stressful, you know. He said, there's a lot going on. And so we started our efforts by asking a very simple question. Do you want to donate your food when you move? Well, they started that question uh, about six, seven years ago, and it led to the creation of this Move for Hunger, which links moving companies with food banks in their area. And these, uh, they also connect to apartments, offices, corporate housing, relocation management companies, real estate agents, other like people, to reach as many tenants and homeowners as they can uh, so that they can cash in on this and bring food to the hungry. Now, one of these partners gets word that once one of these partners gets word that someone wants to move, Move for Hunger provides a box. It has a discussion of local hunger problems, the people that need to be served. They provide past plastic bags and cardboard boxes, all to get and help people to donate any food that they don't want to take with them. So then the local moving company packs up those things and takes them to the local food bank ensuring that nothing gets wasted. Now, they had a food event called Spread the Love event in February, and uh, that saw 16,000 meals donated across 300 separate food drives. And get this, 20,000 pounds of peanut butter and jelly were consumed that would have otherwise been thrown out. Wow. Isn't that something? Wow. Here is a story from India. I have a story, excuse me, from India, 
I want to share with you. It's beautiful, and it's unimaginable here in the United States. So it speaks for itself. I don't need to give you an editorial comment. Here it goes. Some villagers uh, went without streetlights for 45 days to help a bird and its hatchlings. Now, when a man and nature attempt to coexist, man usually wins out almost all the time. But that wasn't the case in a small town in southern India when a native robin recently chose to build her nest in an extremely inconvenient location. The village of Patakundi contains only 120 homes and has a total of 35 streetlights. Unfortunately, the misguided mama bird had decided to set up her housekeeping in the town's main lighting switchboard. Well, the nest and its inhabitants were first discovered by the man tasked with turning on the streetlights every night. He happens to be a lifelong bird lover, so he posted his find to social media so that he could alert the citizens of his discovery and ask that they cooperate in taking a hands-off approach to these unexpected guests. He said he wrote that everybody should switch off the lights because that's the only solution since the bird will fly once it realizes there's a human touch or contact near its nest. I also told the group that we should save the bird and its hatchlings at any cost. Well, some people grumbled about it a bit. They said, we need lights at night, and it's really going to be inconvenient. He was eventually able to persuade all of the fellow villagers that any sacrifice would be worth it in the long run. He's a very persuasive fellow. Mm -hmm. He said, I explained that so many bird species have become extinct, and we should not let Indian robin go the same way, he said. So rather than oust the feathered family, the residents agreed to observe a blackout until the nestlings were old enough to fly the coop. The town spent that total of 45 days and nights in the dark, even disconnecting the switchboard from the power source to keep the mama and her chicks safe. After Mama Robin and her fledglings finally took off, the blackout was lifted. But the village's extraordinary conservation efforts for the sake of one lone bird and her babies hasn't gone unnoticed. And while a bird in the hand may be worth two in the bush... But a bird in the switchboard has earned Patakundi a reputation for kindness that's likely to light up smiles for quite some time to come. That's for doggone sure. Isn't that a story? Wow, yeah. Wow. I mean, look at it, America. Check it out. Can we possibly give up anything for something else? Speaking of that, a contestant has won $145,000 on the Wheel of Fortune. Oh, but there's more to the story. He donated all of it to charity. Mm. A man from Encino, California, was a contestant uh, last Thursday's night, Wheel of Fortune. Well, he'd already won $45,000 in cash and prizes during the regular rounds of play before he finally guessed the correct answer to the bonus puzzle, and he was able to collect the 100000 grand prize for answering that question. Well, he donated his total of $145,000 in prize money to be split between uh, two organizations, Uplift Family Services and the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank. He said, well, I hoped I would do okay on the show. I never thought anything like this could happen. He said, I got lucky that day, and I knew right away that I wanted to share my good fortune. So I decided to contribute all of my winnings to Uplift Family Services and Los Angeles Regional Food Bank, whose services support thousands of families. 
The fun and memories from the day will stay with me forever, but the urgent need in our community cannot wait. Oh, wow. Well, I like, this is kind of an oldie, Leo Buscalia from many decades ago, an inspirational writer about love. Here's what he had to say that I want to share with you tonight. He said, it's not enough to have lived. We should be determined to live for something. May I suggest that we do this by creating joy for others, sharing what we have for the betterment of person kind, bringing hope to the lost, and love to the lonely? Yes, I'll take that suggestion. Thank yeah. you, Mr. Pascalia. Wonderful. All right, from my heart to each one of you, much love, everybody. Have a beautiful couple of weeks. It's going to be a fun show tonight, all kinds of mysteries and exciting stuff. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Okay, well, thank, thank you, Ariel, you so much for the, opportunity. For the Starseed News, Anastasia. My uh, Have pleasure. a great couple of weeks, and we'll talk to you uh, next time around. Yeah, dear. Good okay. night, everybody. Good night. Okay, so now I'm going to get Lavendar's mic open, and our special guest, Jay Douglas Kenyon. Okay, get there. Say you on the switchboard here. Okay, your mics are open. Lavendar, are you ready to go? I'm ready to go. Okay. So, hello, Welcome Douglas. To the show. Hello. Welcome. Oh, thank you very much. Happy to be here. <laughs> okay, take it away, Lavendar. Okay, so so Douglas, I have been reading your book, Ghost of Atlantis, and I was a a subscriber to your uh, Rising Atlantis magazine for many years, and I was so sorry that that you had to stop doing that. But when you put this book together, it just reminded me a lot of some of the articles that you had throughout the years. So I'm, I'm really happy that you condensed a lot of your work from the past and put it in one book, which is really amazing. I don't even know where to start with, with you today because there's so much I want to ask you. Uh, as I've been reading this, uh, I have been really um, focused on a couple of things, the chapter on your timeline tangles and the minefields and the DNA chase. So the, I think those are the the things I'd like for you to start talking about, any one of those three that I just mentioned. Well, uh, the, uh, the the timeline thing, I think, is important because uh, this whole business of trying to decide when things happen and the order that they happened in is one of the major ways in which uh, we're kind of uh, kept in the dark on, uh, on, on our history. And... Uh, I think that, uh, I mean, the idea that we're trying to get across as much as anything is that we're all living in the shadow of a, of a great forgetting and that uh, the, the, uh, the past is uh, opaque to us. Uh, and, I mean, to me, the reason I, we call the book Ghost of Atlantis is because it's, uh, I think of this as being very much like uh, – or for the planet, very much like being uh, in a haunted house, and uh, in the sense of uh, being uh, trying to uh, deal with what must have happened before to bring about the situation that we find now. Uh, I think of uh, 
or and I mean that's something that can uh, can is <laughs> a lot of people have gotten into. I'm thinking primarily about like in uh, Hamlet, uh, the the ghosts of uh, Hamlet's father appear to him, uh, and there the ghost is of course uh, his father, who is uh, worried about uh, who is complaining that. Uh, uh, his of the injustice which uh, he faces, and so Hamlet is haunted by this uh, cry, so to speak, from the other side. Uh, someone who is who wants to know how things got that way, and that's kind of uh, kind of I think the predicament that we find ourselves in. I mean, amnesia is a is a, is a big topic, and it accounts for many things. And uh, that was the principal focus of the book, really. Well, talk about amnesia. I'm noticing now with all the technologies that are being beamed to the planet that the Wi-Fi and all the different technologies are interfering with some of our memories on the planet. Have you you experienced this or or have people been talking to you about how the minds are getting erased? I I think that's, uh, that's a factor, I would say, that the condition, uh, the situation goes much deeper, though. Uh, frankly, I think that, uh, you know, Emmanuel Vilikovsky, who wrote Earth and Amnesia and was, of course, the, uh, wrote uh, Worlds in Collision and many, and who was a very controversial figure in the 1950s and 60s, uh, basically was talking about that the, psychological condition and case history of the planet is one of amnesia. If you're looking at uh, people, adults, behave in the way they do in many cases because they're carrying around unconscious records of things that happened to them when they were young, uh, when the, before they had a, uh, when the, uh, childhood memories. And this is the basis of modern psychology. And uh, I think that condition is true for the planet as a whole. And if you want to know why we behave in such a, a, um, a, a toxic, uh, negative way, I think uh, that you've got to first look at the, the things that we've, uh, that we've blocked, that we have prevented uh, ourselves from really uh, experiencing and understanding. And uh, to me, Amnesia is the is the one that that kind of uh, covers it. So, do you think now that a lot of people, especially after 2012, I'm, I'm looking at that date because that seems to be the place where I'm tracking a lot of star people getting activated and how the consciousness seemed to shift on the planet. Since 2012, do you find that that some of the things that you've been writing about uh, are coming to light, especially with the archaeology finds that are happening now. Well, I don't know how much I would tie it to the year of 2012, but there's no doubt that there are major uh, discoveries which are reshaping our whole concept of of the of our ancient past and what was uh, possible. I mean, uh, and this, of course, is the uh, the, the notion that Plato was originally trying to get across in his story of Atlantis. Uh, and the, the priests 
of size who basically gave their story to uh, Plato's ancestor were telling him that uh, Earth had been destroyed many times and that uh, basically the Greeks had were, were relative children in terms of their awareness of, uh, of the kinds of things that had come about uh, uh, on the Earth. And I, I think that uh, I think what's becoming clear is that uh, about the very time that Plato said Atlantis went down, there's now evidence uh, that indeed that represents the end of the last ice age. And uh, uh, Gobekli Tepe, for example, in Turkey, is uh, has now been dated to exactly, you know, or roughly uh, 9,500 years BC, or about 11,500 years ago. And it clearly upsets the entire um, academic paradigm of what's possible. I mean, the idea of uh, you're talking about pre-Diluvian civilization or pre-flood civilization, of course, flood referring to not only to the to a biblical flood, but the flood myths of many, many cultures throughout the world have been uh, uh, basically blocked or denied, uh, and they, there's, they corroborate each other. And it, there's this uh, uh, unconscious uh, knowledge of this uh, ancient past that's been forgotten and that uh, drives a lot of our behavior. And that's part of the point that we're making in the book. I mean, you've got, I mean, movies uh, uh, love to get into these topics because people respond to it uh, uh, unconsciously. And uh, so that's the, it, it, it's just a kind of an under, uh, a kind of a, a, of a, I refer to it as a deep sea diving expedition in which we're basically uh, plumbing the depths of our, um, uh, of our lost identity in search of, uh, of what we've, uh, what we've lost. And, uh, I think that that's what uh, uh, Atlantis really represents. So let me ask you, Douglas, um, from my understanding, when Atlantis was in full bloom, they had some outposts in different places on the planet. Have you come across a lot of places that were outposts of Atlantis in, in your discoveries? Well, I think uh, there is plenty of evidence for that. I mean, if you look back uh, at the time of the end of the last ice age, sea levels were about 300, probably at least 300 feet below what they are now. And so the rise of the ocean levels at that time basically wiped out uh, a vast uh, uh, configuration of history and it basically uh, it was worldwide and there were of course many outposts uh, Atlantis was I mean Atlantis is identified by Plato as the singular place in the Atlantic Ocean but I think the important thing is to realize that we're talking about a worldwide order uh, John Michelle used to say that we uh, we've reached a point now where uh, we live in the ruins of a structure 
which is um, uh, so vast that it's been invisible to us up till now. It's only because we've reached a certain uh, and we've reached a certain height in our climb back up the mountain that now we can get we can kind of see the big picture and we can see uh, what it was that uh, has been hidden from us for such a long time. But it, that does include, uh, you know, many outposts of Atlantis. I mean, uh, a good friend of mine years ago uh, wrote a book called Lost Outposts of Atlantis, uh, uh, Richard Wingate. I don't know if you that name means anything to you. And he produced a lot of evidence that uh, uh, from South America, primarily in uh, or from Central America mostly, uh, that he thought was uh, evidence of Atlantis. But there, there, there's no doubt that the whatever Atlantis was, and I and I think probably we get tied up in that name Atlantis, and of course that's it makes sense uh, that we would because of Plato, but it's it's much bigger than a particular a particular certainly bigger than a particular city, or bigger than than an empire. There's plenty of uh, one of the things that's very interesting is like the uh, the maps of uh, and we talk about this in the book the maps of uh, of um, uh, like the Puri Reese map. Uh, and so forth, which basically show the coast of Antarctica as it existed before the ice was there. And this is evidence of a civilization, obviously, a seafaring civilization, which predated uh, uh, the, the ice formations in Antarctica. And, uh, uh, and there's plenty of evidence uh, to support that notion. So... And there, there are many other examples. Uh, I think uh, uh, the Gulf of Cambay uh, off of India uh, has some. This is really probably uh, uh, where the what was once the uh, Sarasvati River, which is mentioned in uh, in Vedic uh, lore, dumped into the what is now the Gulf of Cambay, and uh, and the whole. Harappan civilization, which is uh, still largely in Pakistan today. Uh, this is another example of where we have clear evidence of a uh, civilization that uh, is pretty much lost to history. Uh, there's uh, another good example is in uh, Indonesia. Uh, and uh, there's a uh, uh, a the name uh, the name of it uh, doesn't come to me at the moment. If you'll pardon me, I'm a, a bit of a I guess you could call it a senior moment here. But uh, <laughs> I get them. Yeah, you, you ever have those? I had, yeah, I have them every but, day. Every day I have a senior moment. <laughs> yeah. They said that the the word is that uh, it's not so much a matter of uh, getting forgetting where your car keys are; it's forgetting what your car keys are for. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. So, so let me ask you, Douglas. Um, we've yeah. heard a lot recently about the Nazis and Antarctica and a base being at in Antarctica. Have you 
any new uh, information, something maybe that you haven't put in your book, something that you have friends talking about right now about what's going on down there at this present time? Uh, I, I, the book is pretty much the state of the, uh, the state of the subject as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and, but there's a lot there that, uh, uh, certainly in terms of, uh, what Admiral Byrd was up to that I think that, uh, has, is not widely known. And we do discuss that at length. And of course, there's this whole business of, uh, the maps, uh, that uh, of uh, Antarctica, which are largely um, uh, not recognized for what they are. I'm thinking of, uh, I mentioned the Puri Reis map, and then there's the Orontius Phineas map, and there are others uh, that, uh, and we do talk, and uh, I don't know, did you read the chapter on, on, on Antarctica? If, if, uh, no, I, I haven't got to it yet. I've been I've been stuck in Egypt and and in mind control. Those are the two places that I've been reading about. I've been skipping uh, through the book. At night, what I do is I just go one, two, three, open Sesame, and I, it's whatever I need to know that at that moment. That's how I'm reading your uh, book. Well, that's a good <laughs> idea. And uh, but well, we do cover. You know, we crammed about 25 years worth of material into the book, so it's it's uh, it's pretty jam packed. Uh, and there's a lot of material I feel in there that you won't find anyplace else. Oh, I know. It's like when I read the contents, I had to lay down and just shut my eyes. I thought, oh, my gosh, those are all codes. All, all, all of your <laughs> subject, subject matters are codes. And, and once a person knows the codes, then it's like, oh, my goodness, then you know to read the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. I hadn't heard that before. That's certainly a uh, – that's a uh, – that's promising. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the truth. It's like I, I believe that enough people that are awake, when they read the contents of the book, they will absolutely know what they're about to experience because they've been looking for it probably for years. You've really been quite thorough with your subject matters. Yeah, for, yeah I really applaud you for taking the time to do all the research to go back through your many years to pull all the information that's really pertinent now. Yeah, that was part of the uh, what we wanted to do was to uh, make uh, take a lot of this material and make it coherent to people because a lot of people are aware of bits and pieces here and there, uh, but it's really only when you can put kind of assemble it all into one uh, uh, shape, you know, that you can kind of you get the big picture. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, John Michelle. Uh, said, you know, we live in the ruins of a civilization, uh, in the ruins of a structure so vast that it's been invisible, and it's only now that we finally start to see the outlines of the of the of the structure. And I was hoping to capture that in the in the book. And I uh, people have to think big if they're going to really uh, consider the subject. And uh, again, part of the uh, notion was that. Uh, uh, people don't think big regarding Atlantis because they've got it in their, in their mind as a kind of a cartoon, like they like has been presented in all the uh, Saturday morning cartoons and uh, in uh, the movies of the 1950s or earlier, and they're not taking they're not seeing it for what it really is, which is a much more serious 
uh, topic with implications for all of us. That's true. That is very true. I'm all, I'm just going through the book right now. I just turned to the page uh, on page 40. It says, The Crystal Planet. What might the ancients have known that we don't? Can you talk a little bit about the crystal grid and the ancient power structure? Okay. <laughs> You're... You're giving me uh, you're giving me a a, 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 a a tough examination here. I I it's uh, as as the I'm not necessarily the best source on a lot of this information because I provided we provided a lot of uh, of, uh, of detail. But in this particular case, uh, there was research that we started out with from uh, uh, from uh, uh, Tokyo, uh, the Tokyo Institute of Technology, basically, that uh, the Earth was a crystal. That the Earth, uh, uh, and of course, uh, we had a really uh, uh, very interesting article on this several years ago by Joseph Jockmans, who's uh, no longer with us, but about the Earth as a um, as a grid or as a um, uh, a crystal and meaning that it's a, a geometric polyhedron uh, with a uh, that basically is the ancient uh, origins of the planet it's it's degraded of course and it's no longer recognizable uh, for uh, for what it originally was, but that's uh, the point. Uh, crystals are very um, have very interesting properties, uh, but particularly when you start looking at the uh, platonic solids uh, and you know those um, regular uh, geometric forms. The there are five of them that can be inscribed. In a uh, in a sphere uh, that Plato uh, talked about them, uh, and these are the there are many um, uh, the subject is 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 hard to boil down into uh, a really uh, to simple terms, but it there's this. Uh, um, form that has been recognized. There is uh, some interesting research from Russia on this. Uh, and it's, you might say it's evidence for a standing wave or for a, uh, you know, in um, uh, on the planet Saturn, uh, uh, a few years ago, they found a, a, a giant uh, six-sided uh, figure that's visible from space that uh, does not move that's that's and it's evidence that there was that there's some kind of a standing wave or some kind of a symmetrical form that is involved in the structure of the planet uh, Richard Hoagland used to talk about evidence that uh, both Mars and um, and Earth were uh, 
basically uh, shaped as um, uh, 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 tetrahedrons or four-sided, four-sided, uh, uh, four triangles, and uh, combined into a into uh, uh, the tetrahedron, and that that was at the core of the uh, Earth structure. And he thought that there were many alignments and arrangements that can be found on Earth, which are are basically drawing from this. Uh, it's a uh, another person who did a lot of research on this was uh, Athelstan Spillhouse, who um, produced uh, evidence that the uh, Pangaea, the ancient um, uh, uh, unicontinent that uh, many people believe was the original uh, continent, original landmass on Earth, which broke up into the continents over millions of years, that, that this basically was uh, uh, um, shaped by and guided by this, uh, this uh, geometric uh, force field. Um, the, I, could, I, could, I could delve into a lot of these areas, but uh, I'm afraid that if I focused on one of them that uh, uh, you would lose track of many others that need to be kept in mind at the same time. Yeah, uh, okay. And that's harsh. That's, uh, but that's one thing. Hopefully, the book does uh, that uh, is hard to do uh, in a in a short conversation. Unfortunately. Oh, I know you. You've got so many chapter titles. I love the one called "Music of the Spheres." That's a really good one. And and Julie Lohr, she's one of our um, guests that we've had on our radio show, and you do her quite proud in the book. And oh, I, yeah. I'm no. And you said that Joe Jockman is no longer with us. I did not know he had passed. How long has he been gone? It's, it's been a few years. It's probably been, uh, I'm not sure of the year, but it's, I'm sure it's been uh, five or six years at least or longer. Well, the first time I met, I met him, I was actually on a trip to Egypt with a group called Atlantis Rising in, in 19, uh, I believe, uh, 81, 1980 or 81. Well, that's the, he, he that's came the first along. time I met Joe Jackman, and then I lost track of him m- many years later, so I didn't know what had happened with him. Well, he wrote, uh, he, he uh, contacted me shortly after we started the magazine, and he said he wanted to write for us, and, uh, and he did subsequently write quite, quite a few articles for us, and uh, he was... Um, and Atlantis Rising, I guess, uh, he connected with it because he had used it, that, that term himself. But uh, he, was, uh, he was definitely uh, uh, a cutting-edge guy. Uh, and uh, we tried to uh, – we, we had some ups and downs, but he was uh, – unfortunately, he's no longer with us. Yeah, I know. Unfortunately, so, there are quite a few people who were, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people that, that started out uh, that are no longer with us. I'm 78 years old, and I've seen a lot of our people that started out with the new age. Uh, they're no longer here, and 
and uh, right. I, I really miss a lot of them, that's for sure. So tell us more about uh, what you're planning on to do next. Are you going to write another book, or are you going to travel <laughs> with – are you going to do a TV series? I mean, you can do a TV series with your material. Well, it's nice. Thank you very much for asking the question. Uh, I uh, – I, I'm not. I, I'm no spring chicken myself. <laughs> it was basically I'm. I one of the reasons that we weren't able to continue with the magazine was because I was getting to the point where uh, I couldn't uh, uh, keep up with all of the things that uh, I really needed to be able to, to keep up with to be able to to manage it. I'm still. Uh, uh, I'm. I'm basically very close to your age. And uh, uh, I can say that uh, I hope that uh, we can do some more stuff. Uh, we're basically working on our website, which we're expanding, and we're, uh, we're, we're putting up a lot of material that uh, we haven't put up before. Uh, mostly it's in we're having a lot of streaming video content that uh, we, uh, uh, we're not uh, – uh, that has previously not been posted. A lot of it is uh, with uh, like John Anthony West and uh, and uh, Robert yeah, Stock. I, yeah, I just found out that he left the planet too. I didn't know he had left. That's right. That was about two years. About uh, I guess probably about it's been about three years now. And uh, and uh, we talk about that in the in the book. Uh, Robert Schock is still going strong, and but uh, we had, um, and so is uh, Robert Boval, who uh, we have a lot of their material in the book, um, and so 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 let me ask you, Douglas, um, did you know Gloria Amendola? The, she wrote a lot about Mary Magdalene. Well, she passed away on Easter Sunday, and we. Someone just sent me an email today to let me know that, and I was very shocked. We always heard, always have her on our show every December uh, for the for the Christmas show, and uh, we had her this past uh, December. Of course, I didn't realize at that time that would be the last time that that I would talk to her. So, have you had any contact with Gloria through the years? Uh, I think I've done some, did some email with her, but not uh, not much. I I know the I know the name, but uh, I'm afraid uh, that's uh, it's very very limited there in my contact with her. Yeah, well, well, I wanted to let our listeners know that um, she did pass away on on Easter Sunday, and she was writing a book that uh, she'd been working on for 20 years, and I don't know if she actually finished it or not. So. Um, Maybe we'll have more information. I'm going to try to find the family and try to find out some some more uh, details about mm, what she was working yeah. on because I know that she she's one of the people that uh, I really have honored through the years about her information. Yeah, well, we we uh, I don't I don't believe we've. Uh, I'm trying to remember if we did do something with her. I, she, it, but I'm not quite sure that I can. I, I know there's there's nothing with her in the book, but yeah, we did deal. We did we dealt with an awful lot of people. Yes, I know. Well, you 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 you. I really uh, applaud you 
for the years and the dedication that you put toward the information, not only in your magazine, but in your daily life and the people that you helped. And I know that just by reading this book and the way that you present this information, I know that you've been someone that's been behind the scenes helping a lot of people wake up on the planet. So I applaud you for that, absolutely applaud you for that. So I'd, well, I'd like to you. ask I'd like to uh, pass you over now to my co-host, Arielle. She has the switchboard, and if there's anyone that wants to call in, uh, I hope that they do it to to ask you some questions and to give you encouragement about what you're doing now on the planet. So anytime you want to come on and and talk about any subject or promote something that you're doing, you're, you're always welcome to be our guest, okay? Well, thank you very much. I do appreciate that very much. Okay, so back to you, Ariel. Okay, uh, this has just been fascinating. Um, and be- before I, I, I chat with you, I just want to let everyone know that if you have a question or comment uh, for Douglas, if you're already on the switchboard, then you just need to press 1 so that we know you want to come on the air with a question. Or if you're listening on the computer, then pick up the phone and dial 917 889 8292, and then once you're in, press 1, and um, we'll get you uh, a chance to talk with Douglas. So, um, and as I told you um, before the show started tonight, uh, we don't usually have a a ton of callers, if any, so um, it's nothing to take personally because a lot of people will listen uh, tomorrow after the fact. Right. I I, I know it's not live for a lot of people right now, yeah. Right, right. So um, I, I wanted to um, ask you a little bit more about your your research and information with Antarctica, uh, because we actually have um, one of our community that had a burning desire to go there, and she did. And um, yeah, her her experience was just uh, something she'll remember for the rest of her life. But um, what else can you tell us about Antarctica? Well, we have an interesting uh, chapter in the book, uh, uh, which is uh, actually, um, it's, it, let's see, uh, it, it's, uh, uh, let's see. Um, there was some interesting uh, research that was done uh, with uh, evidence that was found in the um, surrounding Lake Vostok. That that may be what's uh, precipitating your question, and we were really fascinated with that subject for quite a while. Uh, lake Vostok is this huge lake uh, that has been identified beneath the uh, uh, thousands of feet of ice uh, and the speculation was that uh, perhaps that um, this was um, uh, for a long time we suspected that maybe it was in some kind of a bubble beneath there that and that there was life in uh, in the lake that uh, had not been um, that had evolved Separately than uh, than the uh, than the rest of the planet, 
And so people were really excited about this for a while back in the back in the 80s and uh there was hope that maybe there would be some drilling down to it but then a lot of people were worried that if they did that then uh there might be disastrous consequences and uh there might be some kind of a uh uh some kind of a, uh, essentially a contamination of whatever that life might be. There was thought that maybe somehow or other there was uh, sort of a twilight in this in this realm. And there was uh, uh, that, in other words, there might be light and that there might indeed be uh, some highly developed life forms down there. But uh, nothing came of that. Uh, and there was uh, a lot of speculation also that uh, that uh, the Nazis had uh, perhaps uh, during at the in actually probably in the beginning of World War II may have set up bases down there and had had perhaps maintained some uh, had some kind of uh, warm water. Uh, perhaps uh, geothermally heated uh, areas, and that perhaps uh, they had a base. Uh, and many people thought that uh, Admiral Byrd, who did uh, attempt to, uh, who, who went to Antarctica with a, uh, a large um, uh, task force, a Navy task force in the 1950s, uh, that perhaps that he was going there to shut down whatever the remains of uh, whatever the Nazis left behind. But there's never really been any real evidence uh, to support that. We tell the story and we provide most of what is can be documented is in the book. And uh, if you go to, um, uh, it's basically uh uh, let's see, it, it, I'm looking for the um, here's chapter 14, uh, the polar continent, what still lies beneath miles of ice. Uh, you'll find the uh, available information. Unfortunately, okay. uh, you know, the, at Antarctica, let me just say this, that um, uh, Rand Flamoth, and we talk a lot about his work. Uh, you know who Rand is, probably. He uh, he and his wife basically were uh, uh, close friends with Charles Hapgood, who uh, was a cartographer from uh, and uh, who uh, produced a lot of evidence. He wrote maps of the ancient sea kings and produced a lot of evidence of a pre-Diluvian civilization. And anyway, uh, Rand did a lot of research on this, and particularly the idea that um, uh, he, he believed that, and Charles Hapgood speculated, that Antarctica wasn't always at 90, at, um, I guess you would call 90 degrees uh, south, or it was at one time perhaps 30 degrees further north, and if it, if, it, if it was, 
then it might very well, it might have been Atlantis. At least that was the view that, uh, that Rand had. And apparently uh, that's something that Charles, or not so much it wasn't so much Hapgood as uh, uh, some of the, uh, uh, mostly it was, uh, they did believe that uh, it was possible that uh, that Antarctica might indeed be Atlantis. Uh, it's interesting if you look at the if you look at the planet from the south, you can see the Antarctica in the middle of a like the world ocean. And if you shift it 30 degrees north, then suddenly there's temperate zones that are not, mm-hmm. uh, and that he believed that there was a. Uh, are you there? Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. I I thought uh, I might have bro- I thought the connection might have broken there. And now we're And good. so, anyway, uh, and he uh, Charles uh, I should say uh, Charles Hapgood had the idea that uh, that the surface of the Earth or the outer skin or the outer had, had shifted. And like a uh, like he, the term he used, it was like uh, uh, the the peeling of an orange, or or it was like if you think of like uh, uh, gravy on the top of the bowl uh, shifting in one position. And Hapgood uh, uh, talked about that idea. And as a matter of fact, Einstein he knew he was a good friend of Albert Einstein, who wrote a foreword to his book basically pretty much agreeing with him that uh, that could have been what happened. And so it's one of the more interesting theories about Atlantis. And um, we've talked about it a lot over the years in, uh, in Atlantis Rising. And, uh, and it, we gave it a good chapter in the book. Well, that's great. Uh, we just had a, a caller um that is now ready to come on and talk to you uh, with really interesting questions. So you're going to be talking to Justin, and let me get your mic open here first. Okay, Justin, you are on the air with Douglas Kenyon, so go ahead and ask your question. Hello, Douglas. How are you? Hi, Justin. Hello. Very good. Yeah, I have a, a question. Um, I, I live out here in Texas, uh, close to the San Antonio area, uh, more hill country. Uh, and we have 1,150 acres, and we have a cave on this on our our property. Um, and it always, no matter what, it always has water. You know, uh, um, probably a good year ago, uh, I wanted to kind of go into the cave because it goes in uh, the cave. The water it turns into like a big tank. You know. Uh, has a big like uh, like lake looking thing, um, which that is what's always full of water. And I don't know how deep it is because it looks deep. But anyway, the cave part uh, you can get in about six foot. Well, I found a, an old carved wooden ship, very heavy. It's about two foot long. Um, it almost had like Chinese uh, character like characters on it like a half rabbit half uh i don't remember the the other i think it was like half rabbit half human almost like 
space, and in in the middle of the ship had a place probably maybe six, I think six uh, places that you could put almost put like candles, right? Like small candles. Um, mm. But I, I've been wanting to like break into the cave more, like with a bobcat, but something was telling me not to do that. But I feel it's a very, I feel there's a really strong connection with something with this cave. Yeah. Sounds interesting. Um, and I was just going to see if maybe you could pick anything up. Well, I, I, could, I could only guess, but uh, it reminds me of uh, stories that, uh, that people have told. I mean, I've always been fascinated by the notion that uh, uh, you might discover uh, Atlantis uh, deep in some, deep in some uh, uh, cave, uh, that, uh, in fact, my own, I wrote a screenplay a few years ago called The Atlantis Dimension, and we're, we serialized it in the, in, the, in the magazine, or we did in our early issues, and we're actually doing it on our website now. But uh, in, the, in our story, there's this, uh, uh, you might call them explorers, or people who are basically, uh, have who are involved in the quest for Atlantis end up uh, in in many subs uh, entering into a uh, a cave in this case uh, in the Bahamas and that leads them into uh, uh, to a kind of an air pocket where uh, uh, an ancient uh, an ancient uh, where the ruins of Atlantis are still found. Of course, what you're talking about seems, uh, I, I, it sounds more localized, uh, particularly, you know, with uh, the wooden. It'd be interesting to 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 take a closer look at that uh, ship you found and see uh, how old it is, and uh, okay, if the clue, see if it's a clue to uh, if it's uh, that would tell you a lot right there. Right. You know, I did so many Google, uh, like, Lynn, like Google searches and stuff, and it would bring up, like, Aztec, but it's not Aztec at all. You can tell, but I could see how Google would get that. But yeah. there's something. It's not Chinese either, but it does have, like, kind of a weird Chinese, like, dragon-type head, you know? But it's not, you know, I don't, and I don't know what, and it's very heavy, like, but it, I know how it's designed. It floats. You know, somehow. Um, I just don't know what the the point. It was you know, floating. It would, you found it. No, no, no. It wasn't floating. I and I've never tried to make it float, but I think that it would float, even though it was so heavy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but I just don't know what the the purpose of it would be. Um, so. But, uh, yeah, Fred, uh, you got me stumped. I I can only I can only speculate. I can tell you there's a lot of unusual artifacts around that really aren't very well explained at all by by mainstream thinking, and Lord knows what they what they all add up to. That's of course part right. of what we're trying to get across in the book. But okay, yeah. I, well, I think that 
that, I think that's really good advice. If you could, you know, take it to a a university or someplace for for carbon dating. Um, okay. You know, yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe there are you know um, academicians someplace that would recognize uh, the the pictogram. Um, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, okay. that's that's yeah, that's maybe. really that's really cool, Justin. Yeah, you might you know, try taking, really... you might try doing a photograph of 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 doing some photographs of the pictograms and so forth, um, and get someone to look at that. You could do that pretty quickly, probably. Yeah, that we have the Witty Museum, so uh, I could maybe do it there. But you know, the very front of the ship. This is what's really cool or odd, is it's like an alligator head. I don't know. I, that's what I was going to say, but it actually has real teeth, like like the teeth in the mouth of this whatever, dragon or or alligator, I don't know. The teeth in it are real. They're from something. Like, they're real teeth, you know? Mm. And they're, they're long teeth. Uh there's very I don't know how many is there, but I know there's two or three left, but you could tell that they're they're real like teeth. Wow. Well, so is anyone else uh, uh did you find this yourself? Uh well, me my partner and I yeah, we did. Well, you see, should, it was uh, like, would... the cave is in a bunch of limestone, you know. It's all limestone. Um, so, but, well, I would take some pictures. I would take as many pictures as I could of it and try to take pictures of where you got it from and, and so forth okay. and see if you can, uh, and then try to send the, uh, uh, it takes, uh, you don't want to damage the, uh, the artifact, but, uh, there's still probably, uh, someone who could, uh, who could date it if you, uh, if you uh, did the process, it's amazing how many discoveries people make, though, that just uh, are totally uh, anomalous, uh, unex- uh, unexplained. Uh, they're all over the place. And it just shows the inadequacy of the uh, mainstream uh, view of these things. And it really needs to be uh, brought into focus. Uh, right. And see, I know, I know for a fact it wasn't somebody just put it there because this property has, it's been generations, you know. So this has always been my family's property. So it's not like you know an uncle went and carved something and threw it there. Like it's you know nobody else has ever been on the land, like you know lived there or or anything. It's just so I know whatever it is has to be old. Yeah. You know, it, it and my well, grandpa would, uh, always my grandpa always called it the blue water hole. Well, so, I would try to I would try to document it as well as I could myself. I mean, obviously you could never uh you would have a hard time producing or documentation yeah, and uh, the main challenge you would be up against with dealing with academics is they would say that it was uh, that it's not documented, and therefore they wouldn't take it. Uh, they wouldn't want to take it seriously. Uh, 
because they would say that uh, it wasn't uh, uh, it was uh, it wasn't found uh, in situ or it wasn't it wasn't uh, you can't prove how it got there right and so forth but still or it wasn't I found in a, a generic okay all right yeah mm-hmm. but uh, uh good luck with that and if you, you feel free to to send me any pictures i'm not really in a position to do much i'm not publishing a magazine anymore but I, i'd okay, like to I'll, see I'll what uh, what it looks like Sure, I'll be more than happy to send you some pictures of it. All right. Uh, Do you have an email? Is your contact information on the Inner Traditions website? Uh, Yeah, right. You can send it uh, care of them. I don't know whether just the pictures, I think they'd probably forward it to me. Okay. So, Justin, you can go to innertraditions.com forward slash author, forward slash J hyphen Douglas hyphen Kenyon. And uh, and then there's, uh, you know, I'm sure there's contact information where you could be sure that uh, that Douglas gets them. Okay. That sounds good. Thank you all. Okay. Thanks for calling in, Justin. Uh-huh. Yes, ma'am. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's interesting. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, whatever it is, uh, I, it just—I mean—the sense I was getting is that it was something to be, you know, protected and, um, yeah. you know, preserved. I used to but get yeah. so—I used to get so many people sending reports like that on all kinds of things that people would discover personally, or they would either, or they would. Uh, uh, it, it, it that were just uh, anomalous that really uh, and uh, I, and people would ask me if I could follow up on it and of course I was not in a position to do so uh, but uh, it would it, it, because it's a serious matter if you're going to uh, and then you have to fight your way through the whole uh, academic uh, uh process, which uh, is uh, not there to make it easy. In fact, it's quite the contrary. <laughs> yeah, to make that, it difficult. That, <laughs> that, that seems like it should be the other way around. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are, I mean, once once he gets it documented in you know, photos and um, all the information as far as history, uh, there's somebody someplace that wants to know about that, I'm sure. So yeah. good luck on that on that uh, journey, Justin. It's a, a a mystery to be solved, and maybe one day you'd even write a book about that journey. So <laughs> you know, stay vigilant with that. So um, one more thing that I wanted to ask you before we wrap up is about that caught my eye is Stone Age high tech found at Gobekli Tepe. Yeah. What is that? Yeah, what 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 is that referring to? Well, Gobekli Tepe is this site that I mentioned in Turkey, which is uh, it's it's near the uh, Syrian border there, uh, and up until before Gobekli Tepe, 
the orthodox view of history was that it goes back about 4,000 years. You're talking about Stonehenge and the Great Pyramid, etc. cetera. But uh, in Gobekli Tepe, uh, they discovered uh, the ruins, essentially, of this, uh, and actually there's a whole series of these uh, sites where they're, they're basically, uh, the dates on these things, it goes back to probably about uh, 11,500 years ago. It's like over, it's predating Stonehenge by over 7,000 years. And you're talking about uh, very unusual structures. They have uh, many, uh, they're like, uh, they have about like 25 uh pillars in each one of these circular structures uh, that are shaped like they're T-shaped, and they are covered with carvings, animal carvings. And they're, these we're talking very sophisticated carvings, very uh, well-made, advanced uh, uh, carvings. And they're, they're laid out in a way that suggests that there was uh, uh, astronomical uh, lore involved uh, they're, they're, uh, they appear to be aligned with uh, the stars uh, and uh, this is completely outside the realm of the possible according to mainstream science after all the idea is the mainstream idea is that uh, uh, at that stage of, uh, of human development we were just hunter-gatherers well Hunter-gatherers could not do a large, highly organized structure like this. And by the way, it, there's a lot of curious facts about this, uh, about uh, Gobekli Tepe. But one of the most curious of all is the fact that the structure was reburied after it was, uh, after it was built, which is one of the reasons why it was preserved and that we, were, uh, that we now find it. In all, almost intact. There is plenty of evidence there for uh, for advanced te uh, technology. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm talking about. Uh, I'm not talking about uh, high tech in the sense of uh, uh, the way we might use the word, but certainly way beyond what most people consider possible. And it's the something that confirms. Uh, the discoveries made by uh, John Anthony West and Robert Schock around the Great Sphinx, which uh, actually, based on water weathering, uh, date the Sphinx to much earlier, thousands of years earlier than was, tradition was uh, traditionally believed. And now these discoveries at Gobekli Tepe basically uh, corroborate that idea and provide further evidence. And of course, there's plenty of, in, in Egypt, there are sites that are not dated because they simply don't have them. You can't date stone that appear to be from a much earlier uh, era that are, would have required um, uh, high technology. Uh, and we, we talk about that a lot in the book. There's, it's based on the work of, uh, mostly based on the work of Chris Dunn, uh, 
uh, who uh, wrote a book that uh, we featured quite a bit a few years ago called uh, The Giza Power Plant, which basically where he produces, he's an engineer and a very good one, a very uh, advanced one who basically is saying that the uh, Great Pyramid was a uh, essentially some kind of machine to generate energy and that uh, that's that's what he uh, that's the case he makes uh, I'm touching on a bunch of different areas and I'm skipping around from one to another and it can get a little bit confusing uh, putting holding all of this together but um, that's one of the things that uh, one of the things that uh, what the book does is it uh, hopefully puts these into a kind of a clear, pers uh, kind of into a more of a unified picture, it makes it a little easier people, for people to understand how they all fit together. Mm -hmm. Well, every time you say something is, you know, 11 to 12,000 years old, um, you know, Lavendar has extensive information about Atlantis, and, and that would be the right timeline for when, you know, Atlantean refugees went out, of, you know, into the world. They went to Egypt. They went to everywhere. And Yeah, that, that, corresponds, that corresponds with what Plato said. And it's, it's clearly, uh, and it corresponds to this, these discoveries in, uh, we're talking about in Gobekli Tepe and, and other locations. Uh, are, are, are you there? Yes. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Someone, I'm here. Someone's trying to. Yeah, someone's trying. Was uh, I could see someone was dialing me, but uh, I didn't want to make sure I didn't lose you there. Yeah, no, we're here. Good. Yeah, so anyway. I mean, I have I have to wonder about uh, you know a common thread through you know all these topics that that um, are in your book, and they all. Uh, many of them, I think, could track back to Atlantean influence, Atlantean uh, displaced citizens, uh, you know, Atlantean technology uh, is all over the world. But as you said, yeah. then, you know, we had to get amnesia because it didn't go well for them in Atlantis because that, you know, their their technology went beyond their spiritual wisdom. Yeah, but, apparently it did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and I think we're facing that same situation again. It's like, okay, are we going to get it right this time? Um, because, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, science is just, they're turning out stuff that's, like, scary. And and I well, don't think the, yeah, they don't have the spiritual wisdom your, to know. Your, it's like, you're putting your finger right on the, on the issue, like uh, uh, what, you know, and does the, what happened in the past uh, give us some clues about what we might expect in the future if we're not careful? Exactly. Well, you know, that old saying, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Um, exactly. And, yeah, I mean, in, in our work, in, in tracking, um, you know, souls uh, through astrology, I mean, there are so many people back that have the Atlantean markings, um, and and I personally believe that they're 
they're here trying to make sure that we don't repeat those mistakes, you know, and, and you know, crystal, um, crystals are high tech if you really understand them. Uh, but yeah, all of these things with, with that you mentioned in, in Egypt and um, you know uh, you know Stone Age high tech. Now you said that was like you know eleven and a half thousand years ago. And it's like that just that's to me it just reeks of it of Atlantean influence and uh, because not all the Atlanteans died. Yeah, you know they went and, well, and restarted. We do. We do make the point in there that uh, this is one of the reasons why reincarnation becomes such an important topic because if you if you want the real reason why Atlantis Atlantis is so important to us is because it was us, right? <laughs> and we're we're basically we're the ones who went through whatever we did there, and now we're we're uh, once again uh, facing it. You mentioned astrology. I, I should mention that the, uh, uh, we we touch on some of these issues in the book, and the last uh, chapter in particular uh, deals uh, primarily with uh, the uh, precession of the equinoxes, which I think uh, tracks the um, uh, the you might say the the, the rhythm of these cycles. And uh, the idea of a of in the, the idea is that there is a, a a small year that we all are accustomed to, and then there's a great year, which uh, uh, covers a much uh, uh, that covers the entire uh, twenty five thousand year cycle, roughly twenty six thousand year cycle, that is mapped out by the precession of the equinoxes. And it's uh, so approximately halfway back in that big circle was where we were on the we were at the other side the other side of the of the uh, of the zodiac and uh, we were uh, and that's where we set in motion a lot of the things that we're confronting now. Right. And uh, yeah. like some say the age of the age, like we're in the age of Aquarius now. Uh, and uh, at that point, we were in the age of Leo. And right. uh, certainly that's one of the reasons why the Sphinx was so important, because uh, the Sphinx originally was probably not. Uh, uh, it's shown. We see it now with the head of a pharaoh on the top, but that was recarved. In dynastic times, and originally the Sphinx was probably a recumbent lion, and that's what Robert Schock believes. And anyway, uh, and that corresponds with the uh, with the age of Leo, which was uh, would have been about again about uh, twelve thirteen thousand years ago, at the other end of the of the cycle of the at the other on the other side of the procession of the equinoxes. Right. If you follow yeah. me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, I mean, it takes 26,000 years for us to um, basically orbit our galaxy. Yeah. Or uh, So, yeah. And and to it's a great shot. To, to work our way around the, to work our way through the zodiac all the way around at the rate of about two, uh, 
uh, uh, each astrological age for about 2,000 years corresponds to one sign of the zodiac. So mm-hmm. the age of Aquarius right. is the beginning of a new cycle after the age of Pisces, which uh, followed the uh, uh, began with uh, with Jesus Christ and ends now in with the dawn of the uh, of the age of Aquarius. And uh, and therefore we're uh, and that's the that is the cycle we're talking about. Uh, right. Right. People, you can. It is generally uh, that that frankly that cycle which uh, moves so slowly that to discover that the ancients actually knew and were aware of the procession. Uh, is itself, I think, evidence for advanced civilization. Because, oh, absolutely. Uh, it, would take, it would take an advanced civilization to be able to uh, to be able to record that kind of information over a, a long enough period of time to be able to draw conclusions uh, about what it meant, and there, and then to be able to uh, 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 to forecast what was uh, going to be happening. And I think there's plenty of evidence that that is indeed what happened. Um, and mm-hmm. so anyway, that, that it, you mentioned Julie Lohr, and uh, that's one of the things that she, uh, she wrote about for us. And, we, and I talk about that in, that, in, the, in the last chapter of the book there. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, you just put the pieces together. You know, and it's just great that you've done this all, you know, in in one book, and take all these different pieces and just see how they how they fit together. And certainly, um, we won't find the answers in mainstream academia because Not it, it, challenge, it challenges the little box that they put history into. You know, you take one thing, it's like, well, that wasn't true. Then the whole thing unravels. So they're not really, yeah. you know forthcoming about changing their stance on things but you know well it really takes a it really takes a holistic perspective and holistic meaning whole you have to really see the, the you have to be able to get the big design in mind or you're or, or, or you're not going to be able to uh, to make it to make sense of it right right so um just before we wrap up here, I want to uh, repeat, um, if people want to go to innertraditions.com forward slash author forward slash J. Douglas Kenyon, um, they can read more about your work and um, find the contact information. And we just thank you so much for taking the time to join us this evening and, and share your work, which has been Pretty, I mean, it's it's pretty impressive covering a long time, um, lots of information, and um, and putting those pieces together. So, thank you very much for your work on the planet. Well, thank you for uh, having me on. Well, it's our pleasure. And like Lavendar said, um, anything you know, news comes up that that you think that uh, you know an enlightened audience should hear about, just let us know, and you can come back anytime. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. So that's it for us tonight, uh, boys and girls. 
And we thank you so much for joining us. Special thanks to Jay Douglas Kenyon. And we will be back uh, two weeks from tonight with another great guest. So um, in the meantime, remember, in every single day, find something to hold in gratitude and be compassionate every day with everyone because that's the entrance to the fifth dimension. Until next time, good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 